This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess your sins, to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to concentrate on the teaching of God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together as believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word. The Lord prayed at his high priestly prayer in John 17 to sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is your word that has been revealed to us infallibly and inerrantly through the apostles and the prophets that is the means by which, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and His filling ministry, that we grow and advance as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the highest form of worship is to gather together to learn Your Word, to submit ourselves to the teaching of Your Word, that the doctrines that are contained herein can reshape, revamp, overhaul our thinking, that we can begin to think as you think and not like the world thinks. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that you would challenge us with these things, that we would be responsive to that challenge and learn to think biblically, that our ability to rely upon you and to trust you in the details of life will be strengthened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This second hour on Sunday morning, we have been studying 3 John. We're not in 3 John right now because I am taking a little sort of a mini-series to examine various promises. You see, John, in that third epistle, praises Gaius because he is walking by means of faith. I mean, walking by means of truth. Scripture teaches us that the Word of God is truth, and we walk by faith and not by sight. So to walk by means of truth, we have to walk by means of faith. And faith is one of those misunderstood, misapplied concepts in the Bible. Many people think they walk by faith, and what they're doing is walking by faith in faith. They just have this sort of fatalistic view that, that, well, everything's going to work out okay somehow, some way. You just have to have faith as if faith in and of itself is some sort of power, some sort of innate ability that is going to give people uh, something that in and of itself will surmount any difficulty. The Bible does not have such an empty or vacuous view of faith. The Bible teaches that the object of faith is what has the merit. It's not that you believe, it's what you believe. It is the object of faith. At salvation, it is not that you believe something that makes you saved. It is what you believe, and that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Just because you believe something doesn't mean anything. People believe all kinds of things. Sincerity is not the route to happiness. Sincerity is often the route to misery and failure because people sincerely believe that which is wrong. So faith must be understood. And we have a term for the faith that is utilized in the Christian life, and that's the faith rest drill. And the term faith rest picks up two aspects of faith that we will see in our promise that we're looking at this morning, and that is a passive 
idea and an active idea. The active idea is, is to believe God. And in believing God sometimes, believing a promise, that means we're going to do certain things. That's the active side. The rest is the relaxing side. That because we do what God says to do, we can relax and wait upon God to resolve the problem or solve the situation. Now, I've taken the time to examine the mechanics of the faith rest drill through various promises that are pretty familiar to most of us. We've looked at Isaiah 40:31, Isaiah 31:10, Isaiah uh, uh, Psalm 55:12, 1 Peter 5:7 and Philippians 4:6 and 7. Today I want to look at a promise in Psalm 37. So open your Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verses 4 and 5. These are fairly well-known promises in God's Word. Unfortunately, they are sometimes misunderstood and misapplied. Let me read the two verses. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. These two verses are some of the most frequently memorized and often utilized promises among believers, but they're often frequently misunderstood. Exactly what does it mean when it says that God's going to give us the desires of our heart? Is that some kind of bargain with God that if I'll just uh, go to church on Sunday and delight in Him, that He'll give me whatever I want? Is this some kind of a formula for getting everything we want in life? Uh, does it mean, perhaps, that if we can just learn somehow to commit something to Him, that He will automatically give us whatever it is that we want? Well, no, that's not what this is saying, and somehow I think most of us suspect that that's not what this verse is talking about. In fact, this is a very rich promise, one that believers should claim and understand, but unfortunately to do so, you can't just go in, like we do so many times, and just cut this passage out, with a, with a scalpel and memorize it and claim it. There is a context surrounding this particular promise. And once we understand the promise, I mean, the, the context and the rationales that surround it, I think you'll realize this is a promise that has much broader significance and is more profound in its application than perhaps you understood before. As we have gone through our look at the faith rest drill, I've emphasized that there are three things or three stages to the faith rest drill. The first stage, the first stage has to do with with claiming a promise. You have to claim that promise. And that means that you have to recall a promise, a fragment of a promise, part of a scripture or maybe even a series of verses that apply to a particular situation. This means that you have to have something in your soul. You have to have these verses in your soul because when you're at work and something happens or you're driving down the freeway and something happens or you're over at a friend's house and something happens, you can't go grab your Bible or your notes. What's going to matter is what is in your soul. When all is said and done, the only thing that we take with us into eternity is what's in our soul, and we need to have the Word of God in our soul. Again and again, I'm emphasizing the fact that you should be engaged in some sort of Bible memory program. You can just start off by getting a book on promises. You can go down to even a secular bookstore like uh, B. Dalton or... Uh, any of the other bookstores, and often in the religious section, they'll just have a book of promises. And you can pick that up, and you can just start by reading through those. And sometimes they're categorized for different situations, and that's a good, good way to start. But you should be memorizing some of these scriptures. I try to help with that when, we, when I rehearse various promises prior to uh, different Bible classes. But you should memorize them. The examples that we have in Scripture of people claiming, people solving problems, of our Lord solving problems, involve the rehearsal 
of Bible verses. When he's tempted in the desert, in the wilderness by Satan, the Lord Jesus quotes Bible verses. When he is on the cross, he quotes Bible verses. He doesn't just get into some sort of abstract discussion of theological principles or abstract doctrine. He focuses on what the text actually says. It's amazing. We run around as conservative evangelicals and we make a big issue about the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. We talk about verbal plenary inspiration and we'll fight to the death over the fact that every single word of Scripture is breathed out by God, but then we don't memorize it. And you get people in other religious groups who will almost superstitiously memorize the text. Now, anybody can make this legalistic, and I've heard some people say, well, I don't want to memorize Scripture. That's legalism. Well, do you pray? The Bible says to pray. If you do something on a regular basis, anything can be legalistic. I think it's silly to call something legalistic. You go to church on Sunday? Yeah, that's, well, that's legalism. No, it's not. Legalism is, has to do with your mentality if you think it's going to impress God and somehow it's going to make you more spiritual. But if you don't have the right weapons, if you don't have the right ammunition in your <clears throat> ammo pack to utilize a faith rest drill, in other words, if you don't have Scripture memorized in your soul, then when the time comes, you're going to be stuck. So we have to start with claiming promises. Next thing we have to do is we have to think about those promises. You know, don't just rehearse the promise and uh, like it's some sort of mantra some sort of psychological gimmick that if you just say it over and over again, you'll, it's a, some form of self-hypnosis, and you'll just zone out and everything will be okay. It has to do with thought. And you have to think about the rationale that's embedded in that promise. And there are various rationales in Scripture. That's the reason that lies behind the promise, that undergirds the promise and gives it strength. So far, we've looked at two basic rationales you'll find almost everywhere in the Scripture. One has to do with the essence of God. And I think in some sense, every promise goes back to the essence of God. And the second part of that rationale goes to the plan of God. And the plan of God involves two things. First of all, God has a plan for human history. And second, God has a plan for the Christian life. And when these two come together in, in a problem or adversity in your life, then God's plan for your Christian life and God's plan for history intersect. And that is when you start applying that rationale to whatever problem it may be that you face. And we'll see that, that both of these are aspects are embedded in Psalm 37. So Psalm 37, we have the command, and these are all imperatives in the Hebrew. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. These are the mandates. The consequences are, one, God will give you the desires of your heart. Two, He will bring it to pass. There is a parallelism here. But in order to understand what's really happening in these two verses, we have to pick up the context. We have to look at the overall uh, psalm. Now, this psalm is an interesting psalm. There's about five or six psalms in the, in the Old Testament that are written as acrostics. And an acrostic is a literary structure where each element begins with a different part of the alphabet. For example, you may have your first stanza begin with a word that starts with the letter A. The second line begins with a word that starts with the letter B. Third line starts with a word that begins with the letter C. Fourth line with the letter D all the way down through the whole alphabet. That's if we were doing it in English. Psalm... Uh, Psalm 119 is an acrostic in the Hebrew. Each uh, section begins with a word that begins with a letter in the Hebrew alphabet as it goes through the alphabet. First stanza begins with a word that begins with Aleph, and then Beit, and then Gimel, then Dalit, and so on through the alphabet. Here in Psalm 31, I mean 37, the the 
verses are grouped. For example, verses 1 and 2 are grouped together, and verse 1 begins with the Hebrew word al, which begins with that letter aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second stanza, which is verses 3 and 4, begins with a Hebrew word, batach. B-A-T-A-C-H, the Hebrew letter bait, and that's the word for trust. And so on down through this uh, psalm. And the reason they did that was because it provided an easy way to memorize the psalm. So under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, some of these psalms were written in ways that would ease memory so that the person could easily memorize, and these were mnemonic devices embedded in the text under inspiration of Scripture. Just another little argument for the fact that Bible memory wasn't something that some fundy dreamed up to put some kind of legalistic mandate on people uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. Bible memory has been a major part recognized by Christians throughout the centuries. So to get the idea of what's going on here, why does the psalmist say, delight yourself in the Lord and commit your way to the Lord? To answer that question, we have to go back to the first verse. The first verse begins with what I think is an unfortunate or less than accurate translation. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Now, it begins with that word I pointed out a minute ago, al. It is al plus the hithpael imperfect of the Hebrew verb hara. And that Hebrew verb, well, first of all, al plus an imperfect form of the verb, imperfect tense in Hebrew, is the strongest form of prohibition. That's the strongest way that you can state a negative. Do not do something. All of the Ten Commandments are stated that way. When God told Adam in the Garden of Eden, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he used this same construction, al plus the imperfect. The imperfect of chara. Chaarach, chara means in its basic root form to be angry, to be upset. To it has the idea of something that is being kindled. When you take it in the hithpael stem in the Hebrew, it has the idea of being excited or agitated, to being worked up, incensed overwrought to get your knickers in a knot, as the Brits say. It's not really the idea of fretting. See, when you think of the English word fret, and you look that up, the main idea of fretting is more the idea of worrying, to be obsessed by something, to brood about something. We've already covered passages that deal with the problem of worry as a sin, and that we're told in Philippians 4 to be anxious for nothing. First Peter 5, 7, we're to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. But fret or worry is not really the notion here, although if you look at a dictionary about the fourth or fifth meaning for fret is the idea of being distressed. And distress is part of the idea of chara here in the hithpael, but it's more the idea of being incensed or overwrought about some kind of injustice. It's not that you're worried about it. It's you're getting angry about it. You're getting worked up about the fact that you're living in a fallen world and having to deal with some level of unrighteousness or, or injustice. And usually it's because you or I are the victim of some kind of injustice uh, from someone. So the problem that we see here, and whenever you think about a promise and you're working through it in your thinking, 
you ought to go back and look at the context of these promises as we've been doing and try to identify the historical problem or situation. Now, we don't know what the precise problem was. All we know historically is that David is the author of this psalm. If you look in your Bible, you'll note that there's a superscript there that says a psalm of David. There may be another note there that uh, in my Bible it reads, The Heritage of the Righteous and the Calamity of the Wicked. There may be some sort of title given to the psalm like that in your study Bible. That is not in the original. However, when you have these notations, uh, a psalm of David here in Psalm 37, uh, Psalm 36 has the notation to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Those are part of the original. In the Hebrew text, verse 1 actually begins a psalm of David. It does not begin with the mandate, uh, do not fret. That's where it begins. So there's always this little notation that's part of the, the Hebrew text. So it is literally just a note, a note there uh, that this is of, of David. So we don't know anything more than that. It's, has, this is David's meditation and reflection upon something that has happened in his own life, that he has faced some situation. So the application is that this is what, how we're to think through a situation when we face some real or perceived unfair or unjust situation. Now notice I said a real or a perceived. Sometimes you go through situations, there's no real injustice. No one has really been out to get you. No one is really rejecting you. It just is a situation in which you are not accepted for some job or you get laid off because 500 people got laid off and it just happens that you had worked at the company long enough to have enough seniority to stay there. So nobody's really picking on you. It's not personal, but nevertheless something happens to you. So it's more of a perceived rejection than a real or personal rejection. The injustice that may be there may not be so real as much as it is perceived. Something is happening and you are encountering some situation rather negative or unfortunate in your own life. Now, when we face injustice in life, when we face unfair certain situations or uncertainties or assaults or attacks, they come in two categories. They're either overt or covert. There's either overt rejection where somebody you know, makes it clear that they don't like us and they are hostile to us, and in other situations it's covert. This is the person who is always nice to us, very poised, seems to be friendly, and yet they're twisting the knife as they're stabbing it in your back, and you never know what's really going on in the situation. Perhaps you're dealing with a just a general situation. Because we live in the devil's world, there's going to be injustice, there's going to be unrighteousness, there's going to be unfairness, and we are going to reap the benefits of that just because we're living in a fallen world. We live with a fallen government. We live in under fallen economic situations so that there are times when we may work hard and be diligent and we may do everything we can possibly do to be successful, to have job security, and something happens at a macro level, something like a depression or recession comes along and we lose our job and go through uh, economic collapse for a while. We think it's unfair or unjust, and people often blame God at those times because something unfair or unjust has happened to them, and they think that because they've done something that God ought to be uh, blessing them and keeping them in a particular job. So there's all kinds of things that happen, and one of the things that, that really bothers us as believers is when we're working hard and we're diligent and we're consistent and the alcoholic, lazy, no-good slob that lives next door doesn't lose his job and he doesn't ever go to church, doesn't go to Bible class, could care less about God, and yet we're making sure that we're in Bible class, we're learning the Word, we're memorizing Scripture, we're doing everything we can do we're working hard, we're a model employee, and we're the one that loses our job, and this 
no good so-and-so next door just seems to sail right on through as if there's no problem. So we have what underlies the problem in Psalm 37 isn't simply a matter of a some real or perceived injustice. It is the problem of the unbeliever who is successful while we are going through some kind of uh, adversity. And trying to answer the question, how is it that those who reject God or hate God or ignore God, others uh, may be perverted in their lifestyle, why is it that the unrighteous is successful? Why does the unrighteous prosper and the godly man, the believer who's positive to doctrine, seems to lose everything and seems to be unsuccessful? This kind of thing really puts pressure on people at different times, and it's amazing if you go through enough pressure and adversity, how many times you see people who ought to know better cave in and compromise, and they'll start picking up various uh, procedures and policies uh, just in the hopes that they can discover some level of success. I see that happen in a lot of churches, and I've seen it happen with pastors. And I've seen pastors who have been committed to teaching doctrine And after 10, 15, 20 years of teaching doctrine to the faithful few, they keep thinking, I must be doing something wrong because I still only have 30 or 40 people here and the church isn't growing. They may be growing individually, but we're not getting any more numbers. And you look down the street and some guys come in and, and he has a huge orchestra and they have a, they, they started off with five people in a home Bible study and 10 years later, he's got a church of 2,000. And they're blowing and going, and you're down the street with only the same 25 or 30 people. And that not only puts pressures on pastors, it puts pressure on people in the church. Why don't we grow like that? Don't we have the truth? Why aren't we following the Word? Why is it that we're we're so diligent to teach the truth and the folks down the street are into all kinds of heresy like those uh, televangelists? And yet God seems to bless them. Look at all the money they have. Look at that beautiful facility they have. If I only had a facility like that, what I could do to teach people the Word. And I've seen pastors succumb to that and start getting sucked into the church growth books. And the church growth, well, I don't have to do all that. I don't have to buy into all of their uh, philosophy, they'll say. But, but maybe there's something they're doing that I can learn from. And what is so difficult is that in the middle of that you are compromising something in some uh, subtle way. But we all struggle with this. Why is it that these other churches and these other ministries that are the great proponents of heresy seem to have such large, successful ministries and such beautiful churches and no problems, and here we're doing what's right, and it's just us, and we just keep wondering what's going to happen and if the building's going to fall down around us. We struggle in situations where perhaps there's someone in authority who's treating us in an unfair manner. They're showing favoritism to somebody, or they're ignoring us. And, or perhaps we're in a situation where our boss or the supervisor at some level, there's a personality conflict, and no matter how hard we work or what we do, uh, we never advance. Perhaps you're the victim of gossip or maligning or the public lie and, and you really want to go somewhere or do something or be involved in something and the reason you're not is because the people who would invite you or hire you uh, have bought into a lie that's been promoted about you. Maybe you're working hard and getting nowhere. Sometimes the adversity that we face, the injustice may be national. We face a national situation. Why did we get attacked on September 11th? Uh, what did we do? Maybe we didn't do anything wrong, but then you always have the idiots who want to blame America for everything, and so we must have done everything wrong, and it's not the Arabs' fault. It's not the fault of, of uh, heretical, violent, radical Islamic theology. It's the fault of Americans. If we didn't think we had the truth, if we weren't Christians, if we hadn't done this, if we hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have been attacked, and so it's all our fault. Let's give more money to the radical Islamic uh, fundamentalists. Sometimes it involves criminality. You do everything you can and you're the victim of a crime. It's an injustice. This is what the psalmist is crying out about in this psalm. How is it that the righteous suffers 
but the wicked appears to be successful. Now, when we're in that situation, that's the adversity that's putting pressure on us. There are various ways that we try to respond in human viewpoint. Remember, human viewpoint is always tantamount to sin nature control of the soul. Human viewpoint is the thought system of the arrogant soul that thinks that it can solve the problems in life apart from God. It's called autonomy, self-law, arrogance is the orientation of the sin nature, and the thought that it conforms to is always human viewpoint, what we sometimes call uh, paganism. Paganism isn't a, uh, a bad term. It's not an insulting term. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's a technical term for any kind of thinking that isn't biblical. So it's a very good term to use. And the human viewpoint or pagan response that we all have uh, can fall into several categories. First of all, when we face injustice, what we're tempted to do is to solve the problem, alleviate the pressure by compromising some doctrine. We want to compromise on some doctrine in Scripture or perhaps on some policy or philosophy of life rooted in doctrine. And, well, I'll just fudge a little here, and then maybe I won't have the antagonism at work that I've had. The second human viewpoint response to injustice is to compromise on moral or ethical issues that we, ch- we change the way we do things in order to alleviate the pressure. The person, maybe if we're a little less ethical, a little less moral, um, something will come our way and we can be a little more successful. A third way we tend to respond to injustice is to cave in to the outside pressure of adversity and to give in to mental attitude sins. We get angry. We worry. We develop resentment and bitterness towards somebody. We start thinking about how we're going to get back at them, and we have a desire for revenge, and we feed our thoughts of what it would look like for them to be crucified upside down and have their head put in a boiling pot of oil or something, but we just enjoy those images. We then get depressed and discouraged and give up all hope. Those are some of the ways that, in human viewpoint, we think we can solve the problem of arrogance. Of course, you obviously see that they're all somewhat self-destructive. Another way in which we respond, is, which is brought out in this text, is that we look at the short-term response, our short-term solution, instead of a long-term solution. We, we're, we put blinders on, and we look at just what's going on right now in this situation, and we forget the overall plan and purpose of God in the Christian life, we forget about the role of suffering and adversity in the believer's life, and we look at what's going on right here and now in my life and my world, and not what's going on in terms of the overall plan of God and what He is doing in human history. So the psalmist says in verse 1, Do not fret, do not fret, do not give in to anger. Do not become incensed because of evildoers. And this is the uh, noun maraim from the root ra, which means evil. This is just talking about those who do evil. It may be those who are criminal. It may involve those who simply perform some sort of injustice, uh, those who uh, do not take into account this type of literature that Psalm 37 fits into is called wisdom literature, and in wisdom literature there's often a contrast between the wicked on the one hand and the righteous on the other hand. Now, coming at this from a New Testament framework, we have a tendency sometime to talk about the righteous as simply those who have imputed Righteousness, But remember, there's no such thing as imputed righteousness in the Old Testament, at least not in the New Testament sense, because Christ hasn't died on the cross yet. They don't have imputed right, the imputed righteousness of Christ. And the spiritual life in the Old Testament was a life based on the faith rest drill and obedience to the principles of the Mosaic Law. You led a righteous life. If you were disobedient, it doesn't mean you weren't saved, but if you were disobedient to the Mosaic Law, then you were considered unrighteous, and whether you were a believer or a believer, this is classified as wickedness 
or unrighteousness. So the contrast here is between the believer who is positive, who is trying to walk with God, apply uh, promises and divine viewpoint thinking to his life, live consistently with the Mosaic law versus the person who is leaving God out of his life, person who really isn't positive, person who just has a superficial uh, connection or relationship to God. So the psalmist says, don't worry, don't get your knickers in a knot. I kind of like that. Don't get your knickers in a knot because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. See, the other side of it is, in this parallelism, is first of all, don't get all worked up about it, and secondly, don't become envious, just because they seem to be successful at what they do, and they seem to be getting all of the blessings and all of the reward, don't become envious. That was what I pointed out in terms of the human viewpoint response as we cave into the pressure of external adversity and we give in to mental attitude sins, such as anger, or worry, or jealousy. We become envious of what they have. And the reminder is, in verse 2, verses 1 and 2 form that first unit of thought here. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. They sh- Green herb. They shall wither as grass. They will not last. See, this boils down to that problem that we tend to look at the short-term solution and not the long-term solution. They will be cut down like grass. This is a reminder, well, this is a reminder, I lost the slide here, this is a reminder of Isaiah 40 verses 8 through 9, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. See, we have to keep our perspective on the long-term perspective, the eternal perspective. Now, what does that immediately remind you of? As we're dealing with adversity, this reminds us of the sixth problem-solving device, a personal sense of our eternal destiny. That what we have to do is quit living in terms of the short term and start living in terms of the long term and recognizing both God's plan for our life and what he is doing in bringing us to spiritual maturity and what God is doing in human history. So our application is going to be a little different from that that was in the original context of the Old Testament. We have to apply this in terms of what God is doing for the individual believer in the church age in terms of conforming us to the character of Jesus Christ so that we are uh, prepared to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. So we are reminded not to become distracted by the fact that there are those who are becoming successful and who are getting all of the rewards of this uh, temporal age because they shall soon be cut down like the grass and withers the green herb. It's temporary. It may not seem temporary when it's going on for 10 or 15 years in your life, but back up a minute and put that perspective against eternity, that in an eternal perspective, it isn't going to last. You're the one who is going to last You're the one who is going to receive the eternal rewards at the judgment seat of Christ if you are advancing to spiritual maturity. So when we look at the promise that we have, that we often quote in verses verses, uh, 4 and 5, it is a promise that is rooted in a particular situation, and that is dealing with injustice. Then we come to the next section in the in this acrostic, verses 1 and 2 is the Aleph, verses 3 and 4 is the bait. So what we see here is that when we tend to memorize these, these two verses, 4 and 5, we sort of split them apart. We're taking 4 out of its context. It's connected with verse 3 in the original, and 5 is actually connected to verse 6, and then verse 7 hangs on its own by itself, as sort of a summary, and then it moves, the, the, the rhythm of the psalm moves on in verses 8 and 9, which is the next section.
So you can just draw a circle around the verse numbers there and link them together in your own in your own notes. So we come to the second section section where we have a positive command. So we had a prohibition at the beginning of verse 1, and which is do not become angry or incensed because of evildoers. And now we're told, in contrast, a positive command, trust in Yahweh and do good. Trust in Yahweh and do good. And the word here for trust is one of the key words that we find in Hebrew for trusting God, and it is the word batak. It is the Hebrew word batak. B-A-T-A-C-H. And it means to rely on, to trust in something. It is a very strong word meaning to rely on or to trust in something. It's the key word used throughout the Old Testament, the primary word used for trust and reliance and confidence in the Lord. It means to feel secure, to put confidence in something as a result of that security. So this is a key word. It's used many times in the Old Testament for trust, and we'll come back to it a few more times in this psalm. It's used several times in this psalm. Trust in the Lord and what? Trust in the Lord and do good. So you see, two things are present here. Trust in the Lord, that's resting. That's that resting idea. The idea of relying upon God brings in the passive idea. We talk about the faith rest drill. Resting is, is the passive idea. And he says, and then you also have an active idea. Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. In other words, trust in the Lord and don't cave in to the pressure to solve the problem, the injustice, with some sort of human viewpoint solution that rejects the grace of God. And it may involve doing certain things. And we see this in the parallel. The parallel to, to the first uh, clause, first stanza, is dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Dwell in the land. That means stay in the position you're in. You may be in a difficult situation, and one of the ways that you can solve that situation is to leave. Well, it may not be wrong to leave in every situation, but in some situations it may be. And apparently in this situation, and I can really see that where this may have come, I'm not going to make this statement dogmatically, I can really see where this may have come in that early time in David's life. Remember, there's a period between his anointing when he is a, probably 18 or 19 years of age in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and the time that he's finally crowned king at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And it's during that period of time that lasted about 15 or 20 years that David was persecuted by Saul. And there were two times during that period when David was under so much adversity and being treated so unjustly, what did he do? He left the land and he went to live with the Philistines. He's outside of the land. Outside of the land equated to being outside of blessing. So I can see that this psalm is a reflection, perhaps, of the mistake that David made rather than trusting God and living in the injustice uh, under Saul, he decided to leave the land. When he left the land, he was carnal. Uh, Abraham did that as well, left the land. So David says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So you have an active thing to do, and that's be right where God wants you, doing what God wants you to do. And the passive thing is to rest in him to handle the situation. So David says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And then he takes it to the next level. It's not simply trusting in the Lord, but delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. The word for delight in the Lord is the Hebrew word anog. It is the hithpael stem 
of the word anog, which is a very unusual word, and its root meaning has to, something to do with being soft, delicate, or dainty, something that you would take pleasure in, perhaps, to take exquisite delight in. And so in the hithpael, which is the uh, uh, reflexive stem, it intensifies the meaning of the word, and so it came to mean to take pleasure in, to take delight in, to become excited and stimulated about something. In other words, make God the number one priority in your life. See, a lot of people think that they're doing well in the Christian life because they show up in Bible class once a week. But see, this isn't just talking about how often you show up at Bible class. It's talking about making doctrine the number one priority of life, which isn't just learning it, it's also applying it. It's wherever you go and whatever you do, it is making sure you're thinking biblically. And it's not just a matter of learning the academic information. Remember, it always goes back to the person of God. Christianity is about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we learn doctrine is because we're learning the mind of Christ. It's not just uh, learning a lot of neat facts and interesting things and being involved in this for intellectual stimulation. It is to delight ourselves in the Lord. And the result is, he shall give you the desires of your heart. And this isn't saying that he's going to give you what you want. It's not that he's talking about getting what you want. It is that he will (coughs) provide the requests that you ask. But you're asking according to his will. Because you are trusting in him and delighting in him, that which you want changes. You don't want the things that are stimulated by the desires of the sin nature. You want the things that are stimulated from a mature spiritual life. And so the word translated desires is the uh, feminine construct plural of mishalot. Actually, the root is mishalah from sha'al, which meaning to ask or to inquire. So when we read this, he shall give you the desires of your heart. It's talking about giving you the requests of your thinking. In other words, thought goes into prayer, and you've been praying and making petition to God, and this is a promise that God is going to answer your prayer because you have made doctrine the number one priority. You are walking in fellowship with him. You will be asking things according to his will, and he will do it. We have the same kinds of promises in the New Testament where Jesus said, Ask anything my name, and you will receive it. <clears throat> we have clear promises for prayer. So delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. reminds us in terms of the rationale that we need to make our relationship with God the highest priority. The next couplet, verses 5 and 6, build on this idea, moving from the idea of first trusting in God, then delighting in Him, to the next idea, which is translated in most versions as commit your way unto the Lord. Now, what does this mean uh, to commit our way uh, unto the Lord? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. One of the problems that we have in modern Christianity is we think that commit is a synonym for trust. And when we go to this verse, it looks that way, doesn't it? Because in Hebrew you have synonymous parallelism. But actually commit is not a very good way to translate this Hebrew. The Hebrew word here is galel. The Hebrew word here is galel, and it is the cal imperative, which means it's a mandate, and galel actually means to roll something over, to roll something away, and the picture here is of rolling our worry, our concerns, our problems onto the Lord. That's not the idea of commit, that what we usually think of in terms of the idea of commit. In the English, uh, one idea of commit is to turn something over, but that isn't the main idea. Usually what we think of in English 
when we think of the word uh, commit, we think of, of pledging something or surrendering something, and that fit in with the old revivalist type teaching of a hundred years ago that they would call people forward to get, pledge their life to Jesus or to surrender their life to Jesus. And I didn't know that I was under siege by Jesus and I needed to surrender. But that's how they expressed this thing, and it wasn't, it was a very shoddy and shabby way of trying to understand what this meant. This has the idea of rolling something, of giving something completely to the Lord, and it is, uh, Galil is a parallel and a synonym for trust, but it is not, does not mean commit. See, commit does, is not a parallel or synonym to trust, but galail is. It means to roll something on to the Lord. And so the psalmist says that we are to roll over or to throw or roll our way to the Lord. And there we have the word derek, which incorporates the whole way of life. The Hebrew word derek, which means a road or path. So we are to... Uh, in trust, we may even translate uh, Galil at this point with the meaning of entrust. Entrust your life to the Lord. Entrust your path to the Lord. Entrust everything in your life to the Lord. This idea is picked up again down in verse 34 of this psalm, where we see the psalmist come back to this idea, and he says, Wait on the Lord and keep His way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. See, what we run into in this psalm, which I think is fascinating, it's a great psalm of trust throughout the entire psalm. We have several words used for faith. The first is batak. And batak has the idea of having complete confidence in God. The idea of having complete Confidence in God, to put our security in Him. This is the idea that we have in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because He batacks, He trusts, He has complete confidence in you. Then verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. Again, batak is repeated. Trust in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. So by having our confidence in God, it's not our strength, but His strength. Second word that we have in this passage is the one that, that I just mentioned, and that is galel, which means to entrust the idea of rolling something on to the Lord. And then that is what we are entrusting to the Lord. There is our way. And then in verse 34, we have the concept, wait on the Lord and keep His way. So our way becomes His way. We're walking along the path of obedience to God. And that is expressed with the word kava. Q-A-V-A-H. Now, kava is that word that we saw in Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And there we saw that the main idea really isn't wait. It's the idea of hope, of confident expectation. Of confident expectation. We are looking forward to what God is doing. And as soon as we bring in that word wait or hope or confident expectation, you ought to be thinking again in terms of problem-solving device number six, a personal sense of your eternal destiny. Now we're beginning to move from looking at the promise to looking at the rationale underneath the promise. What really undergirds this promise is are two things, two Facets. We have the essence of God and the plan of God, and what we're pointing out so far is the plan of God and thinking in terms of the long-range picture of what our destiny is. Now, when we do that, 
we'll notice something else as you read through this psalm, is that the idea of destiny for the believer is focusing on what? Our future inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll take a look at what we find throughout this psalm. Verse 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, future tense, maybe not in your lifetime, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall, what, inherit the earth. And there in verse 9, we have a slightly different word. Or, no, we have kava again. In verse 9, there is kava. Verse 7 also used the word wait, but there it was the Hebrew word kul, which is a slightly different word, C-H-U-L. That's a slightly different word, to wait patiently for him, verse 7. But verse 9 talks about those who wait on the Lord, uh, Chava, they shall inherit the earth. And again, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. See, that isn't something that showed up in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was quoting there from Psalm 37, and and the meek are those who are authority-oriented to the plan of God. See, meekness is a relation to humility, and true humility is submission to authority. That's why God said that Moses was the most was the meekest man in all the earth, the most humble man in all his generation. He was the most obedient. He was authority-oriented. When you're authority-oriented, that is meekness. When you're authority-oriented to God and then you go out and execute and carry out the mission that God gives you, people may think you're arrogant. People are going to think that, that who do you think you are thinking there's only one way to God? Who do you think you are that you're right in the way you see the Bible? There's a hundred different interpretations of the Bible. Who are you to say that's what the Word says? And look at the reaction that the Jews had for Moses. They rejected his leadership most of the time. And Moses was an extremely strong leader, but he was, he was not some milk toast. He was not some doormat who's rolled over all the time. He was not somebody who had the spine of a piece of wet spaghetti. He was extremely strong. That's what humility is, is somebody who is authority-oriented. And those who are authority-oriented are going to be able to relax and wait because they have confident expectation in the Lord, and they will have an inheritance. And that is emphasized again in verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. In contrast, verse 20, the wicked shall perish. And then again in verse 22, for those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. But those who are cursed by him shall be cut off. And again in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And then as we've seen in verse 34, he shall exalt you to inherit the land. So one, two, three, four, five, six times we have this emphasis on inheritance. So what does that tell you? That to understand the dynamics of our promises... We have to understand that the plan of God isn't something restricted to time, but is focusing on preparing you, the believer, for eternity. When God's plan for your life intersects his plan for human history to prepare you to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. So there is a undergirding rationale here of the plan of God. But that's not it. That alone, there is the rationale of the essence of God that undergirds this promise. See, we don't just stop, or you can't just stop reading Psalm 37, 4, and 5. Because when you talk about committing your way, rolling your way over to the Lord, trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass, you have to understand something about the Lord to whom you are rolling this on. And we see this in starting in about verse 25. Starting in about verse 25, we start seeing an emphasis on the character of God. 
Verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Now see, what he means here is that God doesn't desert you as a believer. You may think he's deserted you, but God doesn't desert you as a believer, nor his descendants begging bread. As long as you're alive, God's going to take care of you in terms of logistics. There's going to be food there, unless, of course, it's time for you to die. So the essence, that that attribute of God that is emphasized in verses 25 and 26 is, first of all, his faithfulness, that he is faithfulness. He is not going to desert you in the midst of this adversity. Second thing that we see here is his grace. Verse 26, he is ever merciful. He is ever merciful from the Hebrew word chanan. Looks like this. C-H-A-N-A-N. Hanan. Grace in action. He is a gracious God. He is not going to deal with you on the basis of what you deserve, but on the basis of his own character. He's ever merciful and lends and his descendants are blessed. And then in verse 28 we read, For Yahweh loves justice and does not forsake his saints. He doesn't forsake you because of his own integrity. See, he loves justice. That's his righteousness in action. He loves justice. Therefore, the integrity of God undergirds this promise. So we have three aspects of his character that undergird this promise. So we see that in terms of the rationale, for delighting in Him and rolling our way over to the Lord is, first of all, He is faithful, therefore we can entrust this to Him and He will take care of us. Second, because of His integrity, He will deal with us in justice and He will deal with those, the unrighteous, the wicked, those who reject us or persecute us. He will eventually deal with them and their injustice and they will... Uh, reap retribution from God. We need to turn it over to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And then third, undergirding this promise is His grace, that He deals with us not on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of who He is. So therefore, He is eminently trustworthy. So we think through the rationale. We claim the promise. We think through the rationale. It's related to the plan of God and what He's doing in our life in preparing us for eternity. Therefore, we need to stay under that situation, perhaps. That's called perseverance, hupomones, endurance in the New Testament, so that we trust Him during that time. And while we're staying in that situation, we delight ourselves in Him. We make doctrine the number one priority in both learning and application. The result is that he will answer our prayers. He may not remove the adversity, but he will strengthen us in the midst of that adversity. And he will eventually reward us, and there will be an inheritance in the uh, millennial kingdom and at the judgment seat of Christ. So that gives us our rationale. Once we come to grips with that, then suddenly what we discover is our mental attitude is shifted. We're no longer focusing on the problem. We're no longer focusing on those uh, people that are either in reality or uh, allegedly uh, persecuting us and rejecting us. Our total focus is on God and His plan and His purposes for our life, and the result is that our soul is now stabilized, and we can have confidence. We can reach that solid conclusion in our soul, that we can trust God and we can relax in the circumstance. And as I've said before, that doesn't always come easy. Sometimes you have to go back and rethink your way through that promise a hundred times in 30 minutes and a hundred more times in the next 30 minutes and do that day in and day out for two or three days before it finally penetrates and we can relax. Other times it just takes a few minutes. But the point is that God, because of His character, is trustworthy, so we can delight ourselves in the Lord and commit our way to Him, and He will both give us the desires of our heart and He will do it. 
He is trustworthy. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to gain a greater understanding and appreciation for how to trust you, how to claim these promises, how to utilize them in such a way that we can relax in the midst of difficult circumstances. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that that is, they can trust you with that because Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. Salvation is not based on having a uh, clean life, a moral life, or being involved in certain religious activities. Salvation is based on the completed work of Christ on the cross. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ did everything necessary for salvation. It's not based on who we are or what we've done, but it's based exclusively upon Him and His His finished work on the cross. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.